Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I had a thought on my mind today, kind of arose out of my uh, studies in the Bible, kind of I've been wandering a little bit in the Bible, and we've been going through the book of 1 Timothy, and you kind of get focused on a very particular area, and then in my reading sometimes I'm kind of wandering around looking at things in other places in the Bible, and I thought we'd take a little break from 1 Timothy today, and talk about stuff. It struck me the other day, I, I never really considered it. Stuff is a word that's in the Bible. You know, it's an informal word. We use it all the time. Oh, I got my stuff. You, you know, did you get the stuff? You know, that, that kind of stuff we say all the time, right? But it's a word that's in the Bible. The Bible talks about stuff. And the thing that put this thought on my mind is a verse that's in Genesis chapter 45 and verse 20. Now, let me give you a little background before I read it. This is when Joseph has revealed to his brothers, look, I'm your brother. They thought he was, you know, this big Egyptian magistrate, and he was. They did not realize that he was their brother. So he finally comes to this moment where he reveals to them, look, I'm your brother. You sold me into slavery. God had a purpose in this. You know, he's kind of letting them know he's not hostile towards them as a result of what they did toward him. He, Joseph has seen the purpose in this. So he reveals this to his brethren. And in the course of this conversation, he basically says, bring the family down here. Let's go get my dad and let's come on back down here. And you're going to live in Egypt. We have this place you can stay and They ended up in the land of Goshen is what the Bible teaches, which is some of the most fertile land in all of Egypt. And they they ended up with a place there. But as part of the instruction to go get family here, in verse 20, let me start in verse 19. He said, Now thou art commanded, this do ye, take you wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. So, Load up the stuff we've got here and go up there to get these people, right? But the next verse says, also regard not your stuff. So you can imagine if someone showed up, imagine you're in this scenario where you've got a child that you think was killed by a wild beast, I think is what the Bible said. Horrible accident, right? Never got to bury him or whatever, and he's just gone, and you've been convinced of this for a long time, and then someone shows up and they say, your son is alive. He's down here in Egypt. They're going to give you a place. That you come on down there and, and live with him. But first of all, that message would be very shocking. You know, it would just, you'd probably be reeling from it. You know, how many times had you reconciled yourself to the fact that my son is gone? He was tragically killed. He didn't know the full story about how all that played out. He thought his son had been tragically killed in an accident. So the message that your son is alive enough would have been a pretty shocking thing to hear. But then there's this issue of moving. Just move on down here and live with him. He's got plenty for everybody, and the whole family can be reunited down here in Egypt. Now, I've only really moved once in my personal existence. I don't count the times that I moved to college or moved into some bachelor pad or even the time that Catherine and I got our first apartment, it really wasn't that much of a move because we didn't have any stuff. 
right? We didn't have the stuff. Very little, right? Enough that you could put it in one vehicle and carry it up in a couple trips. That's, I don't count that as a move. When we bought our second house, and we lived in that house for 10 years, that house had something that was both a blessing and a curse. It's kind of rare in Arkansas, but it had a full basement. And I thought, this is great. You know, I I'd, I'd had a little area down there where I'd set up a place where I could have my buddies come over and we could sit and play board games. And, you know, it was kind of a man cave kind of thing. It was very rough. It's not like an interior of a house. It's very much like a basement. It was pretty gross, actually. But because it was so much space under there, I started acquiring stuff. And anytime I got stuff, what did I think? Well, I just put that down in the basement. And I did that for 10 years or so, not really thinking that much about it until the day came when we needed to move into another house. And I was like, look at all this stuff. How did I acquire it? Most of it's just stuff I didn't even need. And it was nuts. That was the first time that I became aware of how much stuff can be an encumbrance to your life. And at the time when we moved, I didn't have the money to just say, well, I'm going to pay some moving company to come in and they'll just do it all and it'll end up, it'll magically appear at some other place. It dawned on me, I've got to move all this stuff. Now I've got young kids and uh, I've got a truck and I spent a lot of time driving from where we were to our new house. Every day after work, I'd go over there, I'd get a load of stuff and put it in my truck. And, and I literally moved all that stuff, including all of our furniture and everything. I moved it with a truck. But it made an impression on me about acquiring stuff. Perhaps not enough of an impression because the house I bought also has a basement and it has gradually started to fill up with stuff. The point is... Stuff can end up being quite an encumbrance to you. And we are naturally inclined to sort of acquire stuff. It doesn't matter what you're into, particularly men. If you get into fishing, you start acquiring fishing stuff. And if you're into guitars, you acquire guitar stuff. And right down the line, oh, I'm into motorcycles. Well, I need a motorcycle for off-road, a motorcycle for on-road, and I need one that can kind of do both. And then, you know, I need one that's got a sidecar so I can ride the the grandkids around on the property. You can see where all this stuff starts to expand on you, and men have a natural inclination toward stuff. So when you hear the message, regard not your stuff. It might be pretty shocking to you. Imagine if right now, in the providence of God, one of your relatives showed up at your house and it told this fantastic story, and the punchline on it is going to be, don't worry about your stuff, hop in the wagon, you're moving to another country. And there will be all that you need there. You won't need anything. You won't need your stuff. Now, even... If you believed that person, I suspect you would feel a little bit of consternation about the idea of, wait, we're just going to walk away from my stuff? I mean, just imagine walking away from your house. You got a whole 
lifetime of stuff you've acquired and you've set it up in just a very particular way. I know exactly where I set down my coffee mug in the morning and I know where my ottoman is and this is the, you've got this routine and all this stuff around it that's baked into it. So someone coming to you and saying, regard not your stuff, I think would be extremely unsettling. And it says something to us, maybe similar to what was said to me when I realized all this stuff I had acquired in my basement. It says something about the importance of our stuff. Now, it's not bad to have stuff. God blesses us with things, but we are idolatrous at heart. And it's very easy for the acquisition of stuff and the blessings of God to spill over into a sort of low-key idolatry and desire for more stuff, and I don't ever want to lose my stuff. And the Bible actually warns us a lot about it. If you turn over just a few pages, look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. Now, this is getting into the domain of stuff, covetousness. I've said a few times from this pulpit that I think probably the largest sin that Americans are dealing with, it's certainly in the top ones, is covetousness. And it's a, uh, it's a subtle one because we don't often recognize it. We're such an affluent society. We all have so much stuff that it's easy for us to not really regard stuff as a potential problem, right? Or our attitude towards stuff as being a potential problem. But it's a serious enough matter among fallen men that it is codified in the Ten Commandments, Right? And some interesting things are said about it. That 10th commandment is, thou shalt not covet. That means being desirous of some more stuff, other stuff. Let's just call it that way. And then some things are listed here. Thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. You see, there's an extensive list of things that you might become covetous toward. Stuff that other people have. It could be their possessions. It could be their relationships with other people. You ever thought about that? You could be covetous of someone else's relationship. So this idea of covetousness and stuff has a lot of tentacles on it. And it kind of reaches out and touches a lot of different areas of our lives. And we are to be on guard against it. To me, one of the most tragic stories in the Bible is the story of Lot. And if you turn over to Genesis chapter 13... We see a tale of stuff. I think this is a tale that's about stuff in many respects. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Chapter 13 of Genesis. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. He had a lot of stuff, right? Now, you think about this in their time. If you're someone like this and you're rich in cattle and in silver and in gold, it's kind of different than people being rich in our time. If you have some money, in all likelihood, it's in a bank account somewhere. So you could move from one country to another or one state to another, and you don't have to move your assets, so to speak. If you've got them in a 401k or some kind of bank account or stock investment, you don't have to move your stuff in that sense. That doesn't mean it's not a potential encumbrance to you, but it's just pointing out the difference in how we think about wealth in our time versus theirs. And here you've got 
cattle, silver, and gold. And if you had those things, you were in possession of the physical article. Some of you may have investments where you've got money in gold. Well, you've got money on paper. Someone else has got the gold somewhere. (laughs) If things get really bad, you might find out you don't have as much gold as you thought you had. Because you don't have it physically in your possession. You see what I'm saying? You sort of have a promise that that you have access to it. But that being said, in this day, if you had gold and you were wealthy in gold, you had to become sort of your own personal Fort Knox, right? You got to protect it. You don't just leave it sitting in a tent over here. You got to say, well, I've got this gold. There's going to be some expenses associated with it. I'm going to have to have some men that help me keep an eye on this so that people don't come in in the middle of the night and start taking away my gold. Stuff requires things of you. The more you have of it, the more you've got to do to start trying to protect it, and that requires something. It's been well said that people who are extremely wealthy, they have a full-time job just managing their stuff, right? Their wealth. They have to be thinking about it all the time. So stuff ends up requiring something of you, and it actually can modify your behavior in ways that can be very unprofitable. And I think we see that here. And he went out on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Abram is a man who is experiencing God's blessing in his life. He's interacting. He's got a relationship with God. Lot has been alongside him for this journey and has no doubt witnessed the fact that Abram is a man of God. He worships God. He builds altars. He gives sacrifices to God. He loves God. God is important to him. And here is a locus of God's special blessing on this planet. And Lot's been standing there right next to him through all of this. And he's seen Abram delivered in all this. He's a man who worshiped God. And there's an importance to the matter of worship here. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Stuff. (laughs) More stuff. So Abram's got stuff. Lot's got stuff. Now we got double stuff is what we got now. Right? And it's going to be a problem. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. You can have so much stuff that it starts squeezing people out of your life. You ever thought about that? You could have so much stuff that it begins to undermine the relationships you have with other people. Consider that you are a billionaire and you have access to all these resources and you've got a a home in Europe and you've got one in, in the mountains in America and you've got a place down on the beach for when it's winter time and you can be a snowbird and you have all this stuff and you start thinking about the sort of lifestyle you could live where you're moving hither and yon and at some point that sort of lifestyle where you say well I'm going to live the uh, the summers I'm going to I'm going to live up in Canada and then in the the winters I'm going to go down to Florida and in between I'm going to live in France for a month and I'm going to live in Italy for 2 months You've got all this stuff, all these estates and all these things you can do. If that is 
the life you're going to choose to lead in service or in deference to keeping an eye on your stuff in all these places, it's going to affect your relationships with other people. You're not going to have as much time to spend with other people. If you're jet-setting all around like that, and you're living for months at a time in different locations, it could well be that you're not able to go to church, but only a few months out of the year, because that's the only time that you are in that location, right? Your stuff is starting to get in the way of your worship. And it certainly happens. It gets in the way of your relationships, because the more stuff you have, the fewer people are in a the same social strata as you who have the same amount of stuff and can have the same amount of time spent looking at stuff and dealing with stuff. You see what I'm saying? So these things all start to come into your life and stuff becomes an impediment. Look at what's done here. Verse 7, and there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said to Lot, unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Well, that sounds good. Let's don't fight about this. Let's don't fight about our stuff. Okay? We both got lots of stuff. We're both very wealthy. Let's don't fight about it. For we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou wilt depart unto the right, then I will go to the left. I believe this is a bad piece of advice from Abram. I think Abram here is thinking, well, it can't possibly be that we have too much stuff. See what I'm saying? That's never even considered. He doesn't say, look, okay. You're a multi-multi-millionaire, and I'm a multi-multi-millionaire, and we worship God together. We've got a relationship and a familial connection here. Maybe we should set aside some stuff and focus more on worshiping God and being together and keeping things. We've got plenty to take care of whatever we need. We don't want for anything. But you see, this matter of stuff... Maybe it initially begins with, I've got to have some basic things, you know. But once you acquire the basic things, it is not long before what you consider to be the basic things gets upgraded significantly. And then you think, well, I want a little, little better basic things. And then you start saying, well, I don't want to be basic I want to be uh, in the middle class, or I want to be in the upper class. And there's, there's really no end to the matter, and it just keeps going up and up and up. And very rarely are we challenged to say, I might have too much stuff, or to say, my stuff may be too important to me. If you feel even just a little tinge in your heart of, ooh, I don't like the way that sounds. I don't like the thought of, I might have... I might need to give up some stuff. That's kind of what I'm talking about. It's that inclination we have that I think exists in all of us. So even Abram, a man of God, is not making a recommendation that they should lessen their stuff. Maybe we should simplify and uh, focus more on worshiping God. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. He's looking at this, he goes, man, we went down to Egypt, 
which by the way they were never told to do, but they acquired great wealth down there. And now he's looking out across the plains of Sodom and he's saying, this looks like Egypt to me. You know what that means? I stepped into Egypt. I didn't have much stuff, but I got stuff so much right now that Abram and I can't even live together. Too much stuff. Plenty of stuff. But now he's looking at where he wants to live. And one of the driving factors here seems to be, I could probably get some more stuff. <laughs> I heard the preacher when I was a kid made mention of an interview with a, a man who had made $10 million in some business venture. And he was on TV and they were interviewing him. And they said, well, now that you've made $10 million on this business, you know, what's your next goal? And they turned the mic over to him. And the guy says, I'm looking for the next $10 million. And he thought that was ridiculous. I think most people do kind of have this view that's like, I mean, you know, $10 million is it's going to get it done. You can pretty much do what you want to do in life, provided you're not upping the ante on every attribute of your life. It's plenty of money to get you through this world, no doubt about it. And I like to think that most of us would say, if that was where I was, I could focus my attention on something other than stuff. But that man's response was, in many respects, indicative of how the carnal heart thinks. It's never enough. I can't have enough stuff. I just can't do it. That made an impression on me as a kid. And I think it's an important observation. I think this is what we see in Lot. Lot is kind of getting to this place where he's like, he's got plenty of stuff. And now he's looking for an opportunity for more stuff. And he's willing to trade his closeness with a man who is worshiping God. He's willing to trade that in for this incremental wealth that he wants to go after. More stuff. I'll trade being in close fellowship with a man of God who worships God, who's evidently blessed by God. I'll trade that for more stuff. And that's really where it becomes problematic. Again, it's not a problem to be wealthy or to have stuff, but it's how the stuff affects your heart, and is it ultimately becoming your idol? It seems as though Lot wants to worship the stuff and doesn't really seem as focused on worshiping God and and spiritual matters. Verse 11, Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves from one another. Well, now he has separated himself from Abram, the man who's building altars, got a relationship with God, worshiping God, and he's stepping away from that. And Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. That's a truly sad verse in the Bible. Because you see, that's where Lot has made his decision. I'm pitching my tent over here. And the next verse tells you something about the trade-off that Lot is making in the pursuit of stuff. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So he's willing to move away from the altar of God that's being maintained by Abram and move toward an exceedingly sinful world in the pursuit of stuff. That's the core problem that we run into with covetousness. I think that's a picture of covetousness laid out in the Old Testament that uh, in some respects I think all men can relate to on some level. We're having, you have to modulate the matter of I need to provide for my family, 
I need to understand what God has blessed me with. I need to understand I have, need to have proper stewardship over it. It's good that God may bless me with certain things, but I need to maintain some level of arm's length from this idea of letting stuff get a hold of me. That's the challenge that we face in covetousness. Well, I won't belabor much more of the rest of that story. I think you know uh, what happens there. In the intervening time, uh, he gets caught up in a war, a regional war, and he gets taken off as a captive, and Abram's got to go get him back from that. So this is all stuff likely wouldn't have happened had he not pitched his tent towards Sodom, right? So he's starting to bear consequences from this bad decision, or what we would call conditional time condemnation as a result of his bad decisions. And over in Genesis 19, you see that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. He loses everything and ends up having to flee and ends up in a woeful state. Ends up having children by his own daughters living in a cave. So you go from I had plenty of stuff to I've got nothing and I'm living in ruin and I'm not part of this communion with God that, that existed in uh, Abram's house. So there were a lot of consequences that were borne out in Lot's life, and it's a, it's a sad story. But it's a tale of warning for us. The one I want to talk to you about as we kind of bring this all together here is a few observations about covetousness and stuff, the lure of stuff. The first is that it's subtle. The second is that it's serious we're told to beware of that, and we're taught to be content. So this is the, the guidance in the Word of God on this, and I want to look at that quickly. Let's look at Romans chapter 7, and we'll see something about the subtlety of it. I've said that American society tends to make covetousness and the pursuit of stuff a more subtle thing. We, maybe we, we think of it as more... Um, I don't know, just rewards of the diligent or the talented or whatever when we see the rampant pursuit of stuff. And so it gets reinforced, but even outside of that context, the American cultural context, it's still a subtle thing. And Paul talks of this in Romans chapter 7. He says in verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except that the law said, Thou shalt not covet. I think Paul is saying there is just like, I didn't even see this as a bad thing, right? Coveting the things of other people. Until I actually saw what the law said, until the law said it before me, just in my sort of natural sense of how things go, I didn't even see this as a problem. And now I see it as a matter of lust, right? The Word of God teaches that covetousness is something that is tied to your lusts and, and that can be tied up in the lusts of your flesh. And so Paul's kind of saying, I needed instruction from God to even be able to really recognize this as such a problem, right? Because it's a subtle thing. It's one of the reasons it's subtle is just how it gets mixed in to the idea of being a good steward and being a provider if you're a man, you realize you've got to earn some money and you want to provide some measure of shelter for your family and you want to provide for your children and all those things. And those are valid, reasonable uh, 
desires for you to have. But where do you draw the line? At which point is enough is enough? At which point is the stuff is starting to become an impediment to uh, my life and to the objectives that I originally had? At what point does stuff switch over into being an idol? So that's the part that we struggle with. So it is a subtle thing. It's also a serious thing. Look at Romans. uh, Turn back a couple of pages and look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 29. I'll start in 28. He's talking about how a wicked world thinks about things. It's kind of the context here. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So what he's talking about here is reprobate mind, totally wrong thinking mind, a mind that that does not think about the things of God as it ought. Now he describes it. And listen to how he describes it. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness. Well, probably all of us are like, yeah, yeah, that's that's the way the reprobate mind would think. Fornication and wickedness. Those are horrible sins. Our society is plagued by them today in many ways. Absolutely horrible. What's the next word on the list? Covetousness, right? That's the matter that we get very wrapped up in, and I suspect that we don't often think that the covetous is as much of an offender as the fornicator. I bet over the course of your life you've heard somebody say something, well, that dude over there, he's cheating on his wife. Wow, my goodness, that is absolutely horrible. What a horrible, contemptible act on that man's part. Just, I, it's just a shame and a reproach to him and to his community, it's just absolutely terrible. What a fornicator. It's, it's just unacceptable. But very rarely do you hear anyone say, well, that guy's more focused on his career and on uh, the almighty dollar than he is on his family. And have people say, you know, that's a terrible, terrible, woeful thing. That's an awful sin. You just don't hear that. I'm telling you that even when I hear it, it, just me saying that, there's a part of me that starts to rise up and say, now wait a minute, you've got to be a good steward, and hey, it's hard being a man, you've got you to figure out how to provide. And I'm already trying to come up with all these ways to try to defend a covetous practice so that it is not covetous. And I'm saying that to you because I'm just revealing something in me that wants to oppose this in a way that I wouldn't oppose someone accused of fornication. You see what I'm saying? We have a relaxed perspective on covetousness. It's subtle, so we're apt not to pick it up anyway, but it's also ubiquitous in American society such that you're just around it all the time. It's the old thing of how do you boil a frog? You know, you put him in the water and slowly turn up the heat. He never realizes until it's too late that it's getting that way. Well, you're in that context and it's all around you, and you don't realize how hot the water is, right? Because it's just, it just seems natural to you. So it is a serious matter. Look at the company it keeps. <laughs> the company it keeps is fornication, unrighteousness, wickedness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, murder, murder. This is in the company it keeps. Debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. 
disobedient to parents. Does this give you a heightened sense of the importance of the, of the matter of covetousness and how stuff could be a real problem in your life? Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. But fornication and uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. It's put right there with fornication. To be not once named among you. Is it a more serious matter than we make it out to be? It really is. I don't know if I'm preaching to any of you today, but I'm preaching to me on this because I see it in my own heart. I don't want to hide it. I want to make it known that this is something that's problematic. And we need to be aware of it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn back a few pages. Same thing again. Look in verse 9. Know ye not that that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Hey, we'll get really bothered about all those types of sins. You see, Christians go, well, that's just totally unacceptable. We can't let that be going on in the kingdom of God. Well, they're bad sins. But what's the company they keep? Nor thieves nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Covetousness can keep you from inheriting God's visible kingdom in this world. There are certainly former members of this church who should be here today who have decided they're going to do other things with their stuff on this day. And I set that before you as Exhibit A of how covetousness and stuff will get between you and the kingdom of God. And in that sense, they have lost their inheritance in the kingdom of God. We should be very clear. I'm not saying they're not children of God. They're not born again. They don't have a relationship with God. I'm not saying any of that. I'm talking about their inheritance. This is where the inheritance is. The kingdom is here with God's people. This is the sole institution that the Lord founded on this earth for religious instruction and Christian fellowship. That's where it is. It's right here in the kingdom, and you can let stuff get between you and it. It's very evidently so. And when you start to really think about the company that covetousness keeps in terms of a list of horrible sins, it should give us pause and an occasion to think about our own sense of covetousness. Now, something that's this important, look over in Luke chapter 12. It would be impossible to think of something that would have this much importance was left unaddressed by the Lord. But He warns us about it. The Lord actually says a lot about money. So, you should be aware of that. Luke chapter 12, starting in about verse 15. And He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. I wonder how much we really believe that. It's easy. I feel drawn into it. I'm just being honest with you. I feel drawn into the whole thing of acquiring stuff. It has a strong lure on the, on, on the heart of a man. I think men are at their core. There's something 
that's good there is an attribute that I would call empire building. They want to have an estate. They want to, you know, acquire, they do want to acquire things over the course of time. And there is a measure of things that should be acquired that should be necessary to raise your family and provide for them and all those sorts of things. But where we get into trouble is how far beyond all that it can go. And when that becomes an impediment to your access to the kingdom of God. That's where it really becomes a problem. We're all going to have different levels of stuff. There's all differing levels of stuff. And we shouldn't play the stuff measuring stick. Save only the measuring stick being, are they serving in the kingdom of God? Have they lost their inheritance in the kingdom of God? Are they in the process of losing it? Are they haggling between the kingdom of God and their stuff? And constantly trying to find a way, well, I'll go over here and serve my stuff. Bayliners, baseball tournaments, Harley Davidsons, they're the things literally that draw people out of the kingdom of God. There's a point at which there's some dealing going on and you say, you know what, I'm just giving in. I'm going to go with my stuff. And it's easy to do. You'll be aware of it. The Lord gives this warning here. He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, if your focus is on your material stuff to such a degree that you're, it'll turn you away from God. It'll turn you away from serving in the kingdom because it requires something of you. You don't just have stuff and it just kind of sits there. It doesn't require anything of you. If you have a boat... There is a sense in which it is requiring you to do something with it. Your mind is going, well, I want to get out on the boat. Nothing wrong with getting out on a boat until it gets into, but, you know, best time to fish is on Sunday morning. See that? You're losing your inheritance in the kingdom of God because you've chosen your stuff over serving the Lord. Because your life does not consist in the abundance of your things. Stuff requires things of you. I bought a four-wheeler for Andrew, and it's requiring things of me. It didn't at first, other than paying for it. Now it's like it, all those things have carburetors in them, and they sit dormant for months on end, and then when it comes time you want to ride them again, well, you're probably going to have to rebuild the carburetor in it. So I've got one sitting there in a shed, and it's like, okay, it's requiring something of me. I'm going to have to pull the carburetor off that thing. It's been several hours poking around. Right? It's going to require something. Taking care of a boat is the same thing. It's all that stuff. Stuff will require things of you, and that's okay to a certain extent, but when it starts to get between you and your inheritance in the kingdom of God, that's when we have to be sober enough to say, you know what? I got to back away from some stuff here. So we're taught to beware, and we see this example of this man who's thinking so much about his stuff that he's laying up his treasure here only to have it all disappear in an instant. Because he dies and somebody else has got his stuff. We should think about it that way. 
Don't get too wound up in your stuff. Let's close with this. Hebrews chapter 13. What's the most important stuff you got? Well, you, you might say, well, my kids, that's, can I count that as stuff? My kids are really important stuff. Yeah, that's some pretty important stuff. I'll give you that. What's the most important stuff you got? And if you had some really important stuff, wouldn't that be where you'd want to put your focus? wonder what would be on our list if we listed out your top five stuff. What are your top five items of stuff? How would you put, what would you put on that list? Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness. I think my heart is inclined to say, well, let's not try to have too much covetousness. <laughs> I'm almost like we're so covetous that setting the bar at no covetousness might be too far. Could we just get less covetousness? Now, that's not what the Word of God says, but that's how my mind thinks about it. That tells you how relaxed my natural inclination towards covetousness is and my desire to want to try to justify it. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. Paul said godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content with such things as ye have. Now you look at your list of the top five things. What's my top five stuff items on my list? Okay, I'm looking at that list. I wonder if this one's on it. Be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That should be the top of the list. If you want to call that stuff, that's good stuff. It's the best stuff you could ever possibly have. And it will be more sweet to you the closer you get to the end of your life and you realize this stuff's all passing away. Now when you're young, you don't think about that much. You think you're going to live forever. But the older you get, the more you realize your own mortality. And you realize all this stuff you've acquired, well, they say you can't take it with you. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. That's the idea. You cannot take it with you. And ultimately, this stuff drops off the board. Well, what's really important? What's really important is the spiritual stuff, what we have in the kingdom of God, the knowledge of what Christ has done for us. And that knowledge leads us to conclude, He does not lie, and He promises to us that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you're going to be focused on stuff, that's the stuff you need to be focused on. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.